name is Angelica Schuyler. Alexander Hamilton. Where's your family from? Unimportant, there's a million things I haven't done. Just you wait, just you wait. Work, work, Angelica. Work, work, Eliza and Peggy. The Schuyler sisters, Angelica, Peggy, Eliza. Work. I'm not going to do it. Oh, Lord. Hello, and welcome to bonus episode 30, with an asterisk, I will get to that in just a second, of movie musical memories. So today, um, I flipped it a little bit. Um, I, I don't know if I really teased it in the showboat episode or not. Um, but I'm going to do two bonus episodes on, um, on two recordings of live musicals that aired for television slash a streaming site that is very foggy about where we're classifying it, but I'm going to count it as TV, because Disney Plus does not give their materials or their projects, theatrical distribution. So, other than something like Artemis Fowl that was intended for the movies, even though this was also intended for the movies, this is where I kind of get in the very wishy-wash territory about what to classify this as. Um, these were two movies that were going to come out in theaters, but because of the pandemic... Disney just decided we're going to put it on the streaming site. So I feel like it's unfair to just demote it into television when it has the theatrical ambition. But you could say that about HBO Inquisitions, and I've put things like The Tale in TV and not in movie awards, clar clarifications, but... That is all, um, I forget, uh, semantics, um, because these are, I'm going to just say for the purpose of right now, two televised recordings of musicals from Broadway that I wanted to talk about. Um, so one of them is the Nickelodeon um, showing of the SpongeBob SquarePants musical that aired in December of last year. Um, and then I want to talk today about the Disney Plus um, showing of Hamilton. Um, I was finally in the room where it happened. I know we're so tired of that joke, but it happened. It finally happened, and it happened at like 3 a.m. on... <laughs> was it a Friday it premiered? I think so. Um, so I'm... Recording this about a month to the day, pretty much, after it premiered on Disney+. Plus. Um, and the reason why I'm doing it right now, well, first of all, is because I got this new laptop, as I mentioned in the last episode. Um, and the other reason is because I was able to rewatch it today with my mother and Madame DiCarlo, uh, because they wanted to watch it and they don't have Disney Plus, um, my technical awful ass 
could not figure out how to put it on my grandmother's t- big screen television. Um, so we just kind of huddled. Well, we didn't huddle. They kind of sat far away from a different couch. And uh, we just watched it. And thank God that this laptop has way better sound than my Namal's HP laptop, which I watched Hamilton on originally. Um, but this laptop's sound, you could probably hear it from a mile away. Um, and that is why the Mac laptops are better. And that's why I spent all the fucking money on it. Even though it was so fucking expensive. Um, anyways. Um. So yeah, so I am coming to this with a little bit fresh, uh, viewing. And yeah, we're gonna talk about it. Um. We've talked about most of the live musical presentations like Jesus Christ Superstar and, uh, Hairspray. Did I talk about Grease? Probably did. Because I started this podcast in 2016. No, I think Grease was a few months before I started this podcast. So that year was, I think, Hairspray. The following year was Jesus Christ Superstar. And then, um, I don't know. Was there another one that I did? I don't remember. But I know I have not done the PBS showings or the Fathom event showings that I go to because they're kind of one-night-only things, and a lot of times they're kind of second-run as well, like especially if it's the PBS Great Performance series. Um, So... These two specific ones that I'm going to be doing back-to-back were to the masses on a big network and have, I mean, Hamilton's available 24-7, but Spongebob has re-aired several times, and you can watch it on um, on demand, and, uh, and you can rent it, which is very different to a lot of those PBS performances because they're usually available for a short window on their websites, and only really re-air maybe once or twice um, after, if you're lucky, which I have not been lucky sometimes when I forget to record something. Um, but yeah, so let's talk about Hamilton. So um, let's, let's go back to the original format of the show um, when I aware of things in pre-production. So my first knowledge of Hamilton was the summer of 2015, or maybe a little bit earlier than that. Maybe it was in the spring or so. So uh, let let me contextualize this. I was in college in Florida, so I felt from, for a few years there, I kind of fell distant to what was going on on Broadway. There was definitely shows that I was interested in, like um, the revival of Pippin. Um, the oh, what came out in two thousand fourteen. 
Well, that was the year of Hedwig, and that's kind of the one that brought me back to the theater scene. Um, but yeah, there was this period of time where I just felt like I was not in that in in the know of what was going on on Broadway. There was like that period when I went to New York for the very first time, which has been 11 years now, according to my Facebook memories from a few weeks ago, when I saw Wicked was my very first Broadway show. And that was in 2009? Yes. 2009. Um, and then two years later, I mean probably a year and a half later, I should say, I saw The Addams Family a few weeks before my birthday, and that was a few weeks before the original cast left. And um, so I was very into theater, then, like the Broadway, like what was going on on Broadway at that time, because like, I was interested in things like American Idiot and Book of Mormon, Catch Me If You Can, and uh, oh, I really wanted to see the How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying revival. Um, and Death of a Salesman with Philip Seymour Hoffman and Andrew Garfield and all kinds of people like that. I really wanted to see that. But then there was kind of a period where I fell off when I went to college and was kind of focusing on film. Um, it wasn't that I, like, fell out of love for theater. I very much was still in love with theater. It was just... When you live in Florida, it just feels like you're, I mean, you're literally eons away from New York, much further than when you're in the D.C. area. Um, and then, uh, so Hed Hedwig was kind of my big return. I convinced my mother to get me tickets for that show when Darren Criss was in it, um, for my, when I came for a summer break, um, after I passed a class, I kept failing. Um, and then when I was in New York and kind of preparing myself for that trip, I remember seeing um, pictures of Jonathan Groff in, like, like colonial-type outfits, and that was kind of my first introduction to Hamilton. And for a while, I assumed that Jonathan Groff was, like, the lead of the show because, you know... He's a big star, and this was kind of the the post-looking cancellation project that he went into. And um, it wasn't until the show made it to Broadway that I even realized that he was not the lead in it, but he played a supporting character, and then come to realize he's probably the most supporting character of the lead characters. Um, but he is definitely the most well-known person in the show to the masses, because I think In the Heights had premiered, like, what, seven years prior to Hamilton. It was a big deal at the time, but, I mean, people don't didn't know who Lin-Manuel Miranda was the way they do now. And I would still say Jonathan Groff probably outranks Lynn in cultural, like, knowledge of his name, because Jonathan Groff has Frozen and has Mindhunter, and he, he just kind of covers a whole lot of people, and it's, it's a, it's a coin flip, I think, at this point, because Lynn has also been in movies like Mary Poppins Returns, and he was just, 
everywhere from like 2015 to 2018 in terms of like press about him. Um, so yeah, they're probably on an even playing field now, but that's beside the point. Um, but I did remember because I was kind of like, I, I was really into like reblogging all kinds of Hedwig content on Tumblr at that time. And I remember um, a lot of people pivoting from when Hedwig closed to Hamilton because the when Hedwig closed was kind of when Hamilton was revving up in business because it opened in the summer. So it, it was literally, I think, a few weeks away from starting previews when I was in New York. So I was in New York, um, 4th of July, like it was, it was the June 30th, July 1st kind of time period. Um, so yeah, it was like a few weeks away from previews starting. I walked past the theater and I think I took a picture of the marquee or whatever. I'm like, this is supposed to be like the next big thing. Cause I remember, I didn't read, like, the rave reviews, but I, I remember it was being really talked about on theater, Twitter, and Tumblr and everything. And then it just kind of rose from there. Um, but I remember instead of going on to the Hamilton stand train, I was kind of more focused at the Death West uh, revival of Spring Awakening, which is the show that I ended up going to see uh, six months later, in January when they were about to close and uh, I walked past the Hamilton Theater and there, of course there was a huge crowd there because this was this was also I mean Hamilton was blowing up and it was very popular and a hard ticket to get already but it was before the Grammys performance where it really just hit the mainstream and the stage door was still crazy and everything. So I walked over there just to see what was going on. And it was somebody who I didn't recognize. And then I walk the other direction and I hear like this thunderous applause. And I was like, is it Lynn or something like that? And I turn around and it's Jonathan Groff. And I was, I mean, not to, uh, um, what's, I don't even know the word now. Um, Pun, that's what I was thinking of. Pun intended, I was not going to throw away my shot of meeting Jonathan Groff. So I just grabbed a random piece of paper out of my bag that was like my bus ticket. And I just flipped it over and just handed this piece of paper to him and just had him sign it. And he had that face of, he's like, you didn't see the show. He was like, thank you. Or I was like, I was just like, you're amazing. But I got a couple pictures just from the back. I was just like, I don't want to like just stand there and say you're amazing and be a weirdo. But also, when you stage door, <laughs> you should be prepared. But I had no access to a playbill at all. What I could have done was given him the Spring Awakening uh, playbill, but I wasn't going to be an asshole like that. But right after him was Renee Elise Goldsberry. Now, the reason why I was in love with her already is now I'm remembering... So the Ham for Ham shows were happening, and the first sh one that I like either watched or really grabbed my attention was when Andrew Rannells, um, Brian Darcy James, who were the predecessor and successor to Jonathan Groff, when Jonathan Groff went away for like a month to go film 
the looking finale movie, Andrew Reynolds came in, and Brian Darcy James originated The King off-Broadway, but then got something rotten, so he left Hamilton for that, which, was that really worth it? I don't know. Um, He got a Tony nomination, but uh, he probably would have gotten nominated as Jonathan Groff did for Hamilton, and had a humongous thing, but he did come back to the show once Something Rotten was over, and he had, like, a free time period that he could come in, um, but those three did a performance of the Skyler sisters, um, outside the theater. They used to do these shows for the lottery people, um, called Ham for Ham, because, uh, $10 bill has Hamilton on it, and that's how much they were giving away, uh, lottery tickets for, and they just made a show out of it every day, pretty much, and I saw this video, and I just thought it was so amazing, and the song was really fun, and, of course, Renee Lee Goldsberry is kind of the lead soloist of the, um, of the Skylar Sister song, so I was, th- that was the only song I knew from the show at that time and then it was like later on when like the Tonys were coming up I was got into You'll Be Back and um, My Shot and then I kind of tried to stay away from the rest of the album but of course being in the car with at Sass Master Maria that whole year of 2016 when um, we were doing 1776 as tech crew um that was always playing in our car. So I probably listened to the entire score without realizing it, but I was like, I, my, I just, it was, I think the Adams family was one of the ones that kind of proved this point to me. I really got obsessed with the opening number because that was the performance that was performed on the David Letterman show. And I listened to that opening number so many times. And then when I got to the theater, it just kind of, blew past me because it was just so familiar to me. So I try not to get so involved with any songs from a musical before I get the chance to see it. But I usually let, like, the one that they perform in the TV shows be the one that I will listen to before seeing it. But, um... I don't know, three of them, I mean, the problem with Hamilton was you could not escape some of the music, like the room where it happened and um, wait for this and um, uh, what did I miss was another one that everybody was always singing and quoting. Because the thing about Hamilton was also just people were quoting and singing it on just random talk shows like that had nothing to do with the show either. So... um, But yeah, so finally, seeing this recording was when I finally got to see the entirety of the score and how it was utilized, because there was a PBS documentary about the making, which a lot of this footage ended up being in that documentary, because um, it was kind of for both, for the the actual posterity performance that we all saw, but it was also to have that archival footage for all these documentaries. Um, So I got to see how some of these songs were staged through that documentary. But um, 
the I, every time I'm in New York, I always will submit for the lottery. Never have won. Um, somebody who I did theater with, Zach Ball, first out of the gate, going out through the lottery wins, and I'm just like, how? How did that happen? Um, and then it was at the Kennedy Center in two thousand eighteen, right? Um, yes, because that was before I started working there, and I started working there in December of 2018. Whenever you start doing something in December of a year, it feels like it's in the next year. I don't know how to explain that, but, like, anytime Christmas comes around, it's like, oh, we haven't done Christmas 2020 yet. It just feels like that was the last Christmas we did by the time we get to the end of the year because you're ready to move on to the next year. Uh, whatever. I'm weird. Um, but what was I talking about? I was talking about Hamilton. I've just lost my train of thought. Oh, yeah, the Kennedy Center. So um, I only submitted for, like, performances that I thought I could get, a, like, either a ride to or... Um, I don't know, I didn't go after every single performance because I just knew I wouldn't be available in a moment's notice to go if I won with a friend or whatever. Um, this was kind of before I started, like, really lifting, like, all the time and, like, to my grandmother's house, which, no, actually, that's kind of when I started doing that, but I was just like... I'll go for the days that I know I would have access to coming to their house when they're here or when I'm in the area. I don't know. It was one of those things where I'm like, I'm not going to do it every single day because I just can't. Um, but it was supposed to come to the Kennedy Center again this year. And because I work at the Kennedy Center and I live near D.C. now, like where I can easily go to and from the Kennedy Center... I was going to go for it every single day. And then, of course, the world shut down. Or, as they say in Hamilton, the world turned upside down. Um, I'm very punny today. So, um, so, yeah, this was probably going to be the time I was going to see it. Because I felt like a lot of the people who were rushing to see it in 2018 got to see it. And that this would be kind of the leftover crew... And maybe it would be a little bit easier to go for, like, the lottery tickets. But this is my grand kind of scheme, or my, my summary of saying I was never in a rush to see this show. It was one of those things, like when the Book of Mormon came out, that it was such a cultural phenomenon at the time. It was so hard to get a ticket to. And I just said, you know what, I will wait till you can get a ticket without, like, fighting somebody for it. I wasn't going to spend $500 on a ticket to see this show. It's like, I like what I've seen of the show. I'm not, like, desperate to go see it because I know it's going to be running for so long. And it was not, like... I mean, I'm glad that this recording exists because the original cast is phenomenal. But it was one of those things where I'm like, there's nobody that I have to go see in the show right now. So I will just wait till it dies down at the very least where I just won't be fighting for a ticket nor breaking the bank for it. And, I mean, five years later, it's still 
pretty expensive to go see. Um, it was still the number one show every week, topping the $3 million charts. So who knows when it will die down. I feel like the Book of Mormon kind of died down when I did see it, but I still got that ticket for free because a very, very nice offer came my way to see it at the Kennedy Center, but I feel like the Broadway production definitely has died down in, like, demand for tickets, but it's still, like, charging, like, the normal rate for a Broadway show, for a show that will be turning 10 next year when Broadway hopefully reopens. I don't know if that's going to be kind of an asterisk for their record, too, with the whole, like, longest-running show records, because it's like, you're going to have a good year, kind of, to take out of that record, so you're going to be a little bit off. I don't know how that's all going to work. This is such an unprecedented time for Broadway. Anyways, um, long story short, because I've been rambling for so long, um, this was my first introduction to the grand scheme of Hamilton, uh, and it's very good. <laughs> Hot take. I didn't want to be one of those people who just, like, was, like, mouth-watering over it the moment it ended and be like, that was the greatest thing I ever saw when I didn't mean it. Because, you know, I was watching it at 3 a.m., and it was at a time where I was having really, really weird sleep schedules. And so it's one of those things where I was going to wait till like, the morning to watch it. But I was, I fell asleep, like, middle of the night, and then woke up at, like, 2.30, and I'm like, well, I'm up. So, it was one of those things where I'm like, I wasn't, I mean, I wasn't, like, falling asleep during it, but I was like, I, I shouldn't be, like, saying this is a masterpiece, like, this early in the morning, I guess. But... I, I, I've, it's very good, but I want to hold off of my total judgment of the show until I actually get to see it live, if that makes any sense. I just feel like there is kind of a, uh, a thrill factor of seeing the show live with the music, the orchestrations, and the lighting and everything. But this is a really beautiful capture, I should say. From filmmaking standpoint, I think Tommy Kale did a really fabulous job. Um, edited, well, I don't know if he edited it, but you know, like choosing the shots um, to make this more of a, f like a filmed theater experience and not just like kind of the PBS or National Theater Live thing where they just kind of plop three cameras down and those are your three angle choices. This gets you, like there's an overhead camera, there's one that's kind of in the back that's pointed to the audience, and this one is able to get really close up, and I don't know, this was just, it feels, I mean, you can feel the money that went into filming this, and that Hamilton, of course, is just a blood bank of money, so they can afford to spend the money on something like this. Um, but yeah, if you don't know what Hamilton is about, it is a musical about Alexander Hamilton, who was our treasury, pretty much the person who would 
then to our Treasury Department in America. And he was one of the founding fathers. And, uh, yeah, that's pretty much all you need to know. Um, he gets involved with um, a family, the, Sch- the Schuyler sisters, um, and ends up marrying Eliza Schuyler, Schuyler even though and her sister Angelica is the one who kind of was initially for him, but she kind of passed her him over to Eliza. Um, they have a son, and, you know, all of that uh, colonial uh, birth of America story that we all know and love. Um, well, <laughs> not recently. Uh, this definitely came out at a very tricky time to talk about our founding fathers and uh, our idolization of them, I should say, if, we, if that is how we should say. Um, yeah, so you have your George Washington and Thomas Jefferson are, are all in this, and of course King George the Third, and uh, yeah, of course Aaron Burr, who was a vice president to Thomas Jefferson, who, spoiler alert, killed Alexander Hamilton in a duel. But yeah, it's pretty much the rise and fall of Alexander Hamilton. I'm not really going to go into plot-by-plot details, but (laughs) if you know, you know. Um, So my review of it, I kind of spoiled a lot of it already, is it's very good. The music is extraordinary, and the level of craft is fantastic, and watching it again. Um, I will say this is kind of my... This was the second time I watched it in full. There are certain um, performances that I have gone back to rewatch several times, and they're mostly Jonathan Groff's You'll Be Back and uh, Renee Elise Goldsberry's performance of Satisfied. Those were, like, the two that I've been watching on replay outside of watching the whole thing again. Uh, but I was meaning to rewatch it again, and I was glad I was able to to record this episode, but also to see, well, have the time to watch it again as well. Um, my, my, uh, the performances are all great, but when I first watched it, and even kind of watched it again, I do think, and um, a lot of the, like, forums that I'm part of that kind of talk about theater. I don't know if this was Leslie Odom Jr.'s, like, I, I don't know if he was on a, if this was a bad day or a good day kind of situation, because there, there are no, I don't know. He kind of, like, shouts in a nasal, if that makes any sense. I don't know, because, like, I was very confused when some people were on Twitter saying Leslie is, like, the master of diction, and I'm like, that's, like, the opposite of what I got from that performance. I was having trouble understanding the words he was saying because he was, like, shouting them in a nasally way that I was like, I don't know what lyrics he just said. Um, And then I also, I mean, this is kind of, something many people agreed when it first was on the sh- running on Broadway and, and when the Tony conversation was coming up and why Leslie beat Lin-Manuel Miranda for Best Actress because 
Lin-Manuel Miranda, as talented as he is a writer and um, just overall creative person, he's, he's not the best singer in the world, and I think he is one of the first people to tell you that. Um, he's definitely stronger when he has to do the, the quote-unquote rap, which, I mean, it's, it's theatrical rap. It's not like gangster rap or anything like that. Um, so it's very kind of the, in, the, in the style of a Rex Harrison, My Fair Lady kind of pitter-patter rapping, if that makes any sense. I'm not a like music like scholar, so I could really be talking up my ass right now. But, like, comparative to what David Diggs is doing, it's, like, it's a totally different, like, like rhythm of rap. Um, but when he has to go into, like, the ballads and kind of the sing-songy songs, he's... I don't know if he was tired at this point, because this was, like, a week before he left and a lot of the other people left. But he's not on it. He's another one where it's, like... Did we catch him on a bad night, or is this just how it kind of either was all always or kind of just ended up by the end of the run? Um, but the the people who who rule this uh, this specific production or capture of it are Renee Lee Scullsbury, who I've just been obsessed with ever since I listened to the Skyler Sisters. And then I should mention in the lump of um, the songs that I listened to before this came out. Satisfied, I listened to because when they released the Hamilton mixtape, um, I was so fascinated that uh, there was a song that Sia, Queen Latifah, and Miguel were all doing. And I just got obsessed with that cover of it. So then, of course, I listened to the original cover, and I loved it as well. And everybody was talking about that performance when they were talking about how, oh, no question, Renee Elise Goldsberry is going to win the Tony. And I was not prepared from this capture of it, of how deserving she was at that Tony. Um, and uh, the other person... The other people who really dominate this. Um, Jonathan Groff, I mean, he was the one who was, like, trending on Twitter when this uh, dropped. More for uh, a certain uh, certain thing that goes on when he performs a song that is uh, pretty much known by theater people, especially if they have seen a Jonathan Groff show, especially in the first three rows. But this was amplified because it was an HD and very close up that uh, he, I mean, and like this is like signs of a really great performer, weirdly enough. The amount of spit that comes out of his mouth is just, uh, I wouldn't say alarming, but it's just very, very bizarre to see up close and personal. Um, especially when you know, like, he's not gonna, like, spend the time cleaning it up, and it's just hanging off the lip while he's, like, pouring his heart and soul into this, like, show-stopping villain song, and, I don't know, it was very entertaining to see him trending on Twitter because of this, but weirdly enough, and still as of now, 
Uh, You'll Be Back is the song that is like the top of the iTunes charts when it comes to the Hamilton songs after this dropped. And um, it's it's kind of your traditional Broadway number from the show, so I see the universal appeal out of it. Um, and because it is such like a funny song as well. So uh, I, I, I think... Because when the Tonys were happening, I was like, oh my god, Jonathan Groff, finally going to win a Tony. He seems like he's so overdue, even though he only really had been in one other Broadway production, and that was Spring Awakening. Like, originating a role, like, something like a Spring Awakening or Hamilton, where he was there opening night for it, and it was a long run. It wasn't an off-Broadway thing, or like a fill-in or anything, or a charity production or whatever. Um, but he's kind of in that group of people like Andrew Rannells, who crossed over right after they broke big on Broadway, got a Tony nomination for something that, you know, you look back on it, and it's like, how did he not win for that? Jonathan Groff is in a kind of a competitive race um, that... David Hyde Pierce ended up winning kind of as a career win. And um, I forget who was out front to win that. That was the year of... It was Spring Awakening. Well, Legally Blonde wasn't nominated. It was Spring Awakening, Mary Poppins. Gavin Creel was nominated, but he... Or not Gavin Creel. Gavin Lee was nominated, but he wasn't really, like, a frontrunner. David Hyde Pierce... And then, ooh, I am totally blanking on the other nominees that year. Uh, 20, uh, 2007 Tony Awards. Because, uh, who was the other big? Uh, uh, Michael Cerverus for Love Music, which... Nobody remembers that. Oh, Raul Esparza for Company was, like, the big front runner going into the night. And people were like, David Hyde Pierce is probably the spoiler because he'd been in so many shows and hadn't won yet. And um, I th- John McGraw, I think, was... He was probably third in the race, but, um, you know, when he broke big on Glee, is kind of one of those things, like, this kid is amazing, and how did he not win a Tony Award for Spring Awakening when you listen back to that cash recording? But, um, you know, he was young, so he, he'll have more chances. But the thing is, he's been more in the TV and film land since <laughs> coming to Glee, and then Hamilton was kind of his big return to a big show, and he got the nomination, I was like, oh my god, he can finally win a Tony. And then the the buzz on the street was David Diggs was the big front runner. And I was like, I really want it to be Jonathan Groff. But people who had seen the show explained to me how little Jonathan Groff is in Hamilton comparatively to David Diggs and what David Diggs does in the show. And then as I've seen from here and from other clips and just David Diggs kind of has had the best post Hamilton career out of these actors, in my opinion. Um, I will I'll talk about him in just a second, but I want to talk about his performance. 
um, because he plays two different roles. There's a couple different actors who are in supporting roles who in Act 1 play a character and then in Act 2 play a whole different character. Um, so in Act 1 he plays Lafayette and he's very, he's got a big accent and like, and this, he raps, like does a really, really speedy rap in this and um, he's just got so much energy and charisma. And then in Act 2 he plays Thomas Jefferson and is very charismatic and has like this great kind of pimp walk to him and um, yeah he definitely deserved the Tony that he won um, I really hope Jonathan Groff he just seems like I mean and Andrew Reynolds the same way he did the Book of Mormon he goes off and does TV and a couple of movies and then he comes back to Broadway as a repl- like a replacement for Hedwig he was the second Hedwig does that for a little while. Then he goes on to do this fill-in for Hamilton, and Falsettos was kind of his big second um, show after his breakout in the Book of Mormon, and he gets the Tony nomination, and many people will not shut up about how Andrew Reynolds should have won for Falsettos. Uh, I saw the PBS recording of it, he is amazing. Gavin Creel, though, for Hello, Dolly, he is kind of your template for what I think is going to happen to Jonathan Groff and Andrew Rannells, where this really amazing leading man, sometimes supporting um, actor, who has this gorgeous voice, he breaks big very early on in his career, kind of as a journeyman performer who goes in and out of revivals and original shows and goes to London for a little while and then comes here to kind of make a big grand return. And then he gets Hello, Dolly, which is this mega musical and gets really, really amazing reviews in a role that is not traditionally a Tony-winning role. But his beautiful vocals really amplified, like, him winning that Tony because he was like the best sung Cornelius but what I'm trying to say is I feel like Jonathan Groff and Andrew Rannells are going to have the same trajectory as Gavin Creel who um, is like a few years older than Andrew Rannells believe it or not Gavin Creel looks like he's still in his early 30s but he's like in his mid 40s Um, Andrew Rannells just turned 40 Jonathan Groff, I think, is still mid-30s, so it's kind of a weird, like, I mean, Gavin Creel was the first, he is the oldest of the bunch, which is very hard to kind of wrap your head around, um, that he's almost pushing 50 soon, um, but what I'm trying to say is, I feel like they're going to have that big kind of revival performance soon that is going to get them the award, um, but they love a performance like David Dix where he was not like a Broadway performer beforehand, just totally stole the show and is this such a big breakout and a big find. And then, I mean, we lost him we lost him to Hollywood pretty much because his first thing he I think he booked was a recurring guest role on Blackish. Um, and then he's done so many different um either supporting roles or guest roles on Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, 
and in the movie Wonder. Um, and then he has this amazing lead role that he also co-wrote. It was a big Sundance hit that was an Indie Spirit nominee for him called Blind Spotting. He was my runner-up for um, Best Actor that year. He's so amazing in that movie, and he's a talented writer as well. And then now he's really amazing on the animated show on Apple called uh, Central Park, which some of these co-stars from Hamilton are actually on. Um, and he plays Stanley Tucci's um, assistant, and they both play like these older women, and they're just hysterical in these roles. Uh, but yeah, I think David Diggs has had one of the like really fascinating and great track record of post um, Hamilton um, performances. And I should even mention, he's the lead actor on a TV show this summer, Snowpiercer, which I still need to catch up on the last few episodes because, I don't know, it, my quarantine scheduling has been a little bit chaotic because I have all the time in the world to watch all this television now, but I map it out so... I can watch, like, a whole season of a show in one day. I'm not usually that type of binger, but it's just so much easier when you're scheduling where you're not doing, like, okay, I'll do an hour of Snowpiercer and then an hour of Perry Mason and then an hour of this show. Um, it's just so much easier just to plan shows, like, interweaving with movies. So I kind of just fall off of the shows that are week-to-week and just wait for them to finish so I can just watch it all in one sitting. And um, the problem with Snowpiercer was I missed a couple episodes to record, and for some reason they do not replay them throughout the week. That drives me nuts about uh, TNT specifically. And so, um, and Mike, TV is going through a transition period right now, so I uh, need to watch it on demand Like um, once I get a new box, it's a long story. But what I want to say is, David Diggs is really breaking out onto television and in movies, and he deserves it, so I'm very happy that he has this Tony, and he is really breaking big. Um, who else? Uh, Philippa Sue is incredible, especially in Act 2, when she gets kind of the big emotional numbers. It kind of ends on her with the um, Who Lives, Who Dies, Who Tells Us Your Story song, and the mixture of her burn performance and kind of her nonverbal performance during um, It's Quiet Uptown. She does a lot with little to say, if that makes any sense. Um, I think one of the more underrated performances in this is Anthony Ramos, He's so energetic during the show and just steals every scene he's in as well. Um, I don't know. He's somebody who I definitely knew at the time when he was in the show. People were talking about just kind of more how he's a young cutie. But um, he's been in a couple of indies since um, this air, or this, he was in Hamilton. But in an alternate universe, he would be the big summer star because In the Heights was supposed to come out a couple months ago and he's the lead in that and sadly we have to wait till probably next year for it. 
and um, I think he's going to be like the next big thing as well. Um, I sat pretty close to him at the Kennedy Center Honors with his fiance, who is also in the show, Jasmine Cephas Jones, and they looked adorable together. Um, she's also pretty great in this, but she doesn't get a lot to do. Um, but she's still very good. Um, who else? I, I just talked about my... Uh, Leslie Odom Jr. really worked for me when he did the more quiet songs. Like, quiet in the way of where he's not, like, kind of narrating. He's kind of just stopping the show to, like, tell his story. So, those songs are Wait For This and, um... The Room Where It Happened. Those are, like, the two really great, like... Those songs prove to me why he won the Tony. Because the rest of it, I'm just kind of like, And it's between him and Philip Sue, you can make the argument that they are supporting characters. But I'm happy that they did that so there wasn't more internal competition in the supporting categories. Um... Oh, Christopher Jackson is the other kind of principal I'm missing. He's also somebody who I feel like does not get the total admiration for his performance because there are so many other people above him. But I think he really sells um, George Washington's Going Home. or oh, One Last Time, that's the song. Um, I, when he performed that at the Kennedy Center Honors, like that brought a tear to my eye because it was really... That was the first time I heard that song, and I thought they did it powerful. I should mention, um, I've kind of name-dropped the Kennedy Center Honors a couple times now. So, uh, Kennedy Center Honors of 2018 happened. Um, I get hired at the Kennedy Center. Uh, it was, so I officially filled out all the paperwork, like, the Tuesday or the Wednesday before Thanksgiving of that year. And um, I'm at Thanksgiving with my family, like my whole extended family and everything. And I'm going through my emails, and I get this email saying, Hi, would you like to be a seat filler for the Kennedy Center Honors? And I'm just like, I I haven't even started working here, and you're asking me if I want to be a seat filler? Of course. So it was one of those things where I'm like, I'm not going to like, be overly cocky that this is real. Like, I I mean, of course it was a credible email, but I'm like, I'm not, like, what if, like, I, like, since, I don't know, I wouldn't meet the quota or whatever, or I I always have that fear that I, did like, did what they totally told me not to do in the email. So I, like, triple-checked everything, and I even, like, CC'd my manager, who has nothing to do with that and everything, um, just to make sure it got, like, to the people that need to know. And then, um, you know, the week, a week before the show, they tell you, you're doing it. So I have to, like, rush to a men's warehouse to get it tucks. And I did all of that, and I go. And it's one of those things also where I was just like, I just want to make sure that I'm not, like, posting this all over social media just in case if it doesn't happen. So once I was in the building with the tux on and I was on the list, that's when I posted about it. I'm like, I'm at the Kennedy Center Honors. This is real. And um, my luck 
for the first act of the show. Couldn't have been better. Um, I got an aisle seat on, like, the house left side, and the person who was supposed to sit there never showed up, and if they told, if they never told us that we had to get up at the intermission break, I would have had, like, the most perfect seat for the entire time, but I did what I was told and left, um, and I got, I wouldn't say a crappy seat, I was a few more rows behind where I was initially was, but way more to the side, so the camera was never going to see me, but, um, where it ties into the Hamilton of it all is, um, I'm sitting there, and I noticed, because I've watched the Kennedy Center Honors for a good 10 years now, maybe a little bit more than that, and, you know, you, they cut away to all these amazing celebrities who are, who are in the audience, and some of them are just there to be there. They're not even, like, there to present anything. They're just there because they are fans of the people being honored. And um, I was just kind of looking around, and it's like, this is not as high wattage as, like, usual. And it was very weird because Cher was one of the big people that was being, it was Cher and Reba were like the two mega stars being honored, and I was just kind of like, nobody like big is here to like support Cher, and oh, because I was like expecting, you know, Meryl Streep and Christine Baranski, like her um, Mamma Mia co-stars, because they're just staples of the Kennedy Center honors, they're always there, and like, you know, it was like a day before the Cher show on Broadway was going to open, so that cast and crew wasn't there, surprisingly, because usually they will incorporate, like when they did Carol King, the beautiful performance, um, they had, like, that cast perform the whole, pretty much the entire tribute for her, um, but, I don't know, I was looking around, and it wasn't as, like, starry as I thought it would be, of course, the first person that clocked that, like, looked familiar was fucking Betsy DeVos, <laughs> and, I don't know, I, I rolled my eyes when I did, saw her, but I'm looking around, there's nobody on my side who's really that, like, noticeable, and then I kind of clocked, like, John Baptiste, who's the, um, Stephen Colbert's band leader, um, and then Nancy O'Donnell from, uh, she was on CBS this morning at that time, but now is, like, the nighttime anchor for whatever their version of the nightly news is, and... Yeah, those were really the only two people at the start of the show that I noticed. But then they do the Reba tribute, and Kristen Chenoweth is one of the people, and then um, an actress who was on Reba with Reba, who I know more from guest starring on a lot of my kid shows that I watched growing up. Um, she, like, sat right, like, on the aisle across from me, and then Kristen Chenoweth was a few rows down, so she walked right past me. Anyways, long story short, I mean, it's not short. So we get to the Hamilton tribute, and I'm like, oh, God, I, like, I know four songs, and they better sing something I know so I, like, can... Because, you know, they tell us when we're seat fellows, it's like, your job is to blend in. You're not supposed... Like, don't make too much, like, you know... Don't make too much attention to yourself, but if you want to laugh, laugh. If you want to cry, cry. And if you want to look like you're enjoying yourself, enjoy yourself. Like, you want to blend in with the crowd as if you are 
just a natural paying like ticket buyer to this um, ceremony. So, you know, I like when a song was on, I would do the whole like, you know, getting into the song, like kind of the head bob, but not like too aggressive or whatever. And um, they bring up the Skylar sisters. And of course, I'm like, thank God, it's a song that like I've known from the very beginning and I know pretty much every word to. So, you know, I'm lip syncing along to it. Well, throughout this whole entire like first act of it, um, like the cameraman has shot me a few times because I was playing the part pretty much and I was like into it. So I'm like, he probably thinks I'm somebody of note because I know everything that's going on right now. And um, what do you know? He films me during the uh, Hamilton tribute and that is the shot that made it on air. I was like, I knew... I, I was like, there's a 95% chance that I will be seen on the Kennedy Center Honors in a close-up, the amount of times he has put the camera on me. And it's one of those things where I'm like, they will probably, when they're editing this, realize I am not anybody of note. And so they will cut out all of these close-ups of me. But, as I mentioned, looking around, looking around how lucky we are to be alive right now, there just weren't that many like celebrities of note even in my perimeter, I didn't really know what was going on on the other side, but later in the evening, when I rewatched the ceremony, um, I realized who was sitting on that side, who was, um, who presented and performed and stuff, and, um, but yeah, I was just, like, doing the work, work, Angelica, work, work, Eliza and Peggy, um, oh no, it was, like, the final, like, the look around, look around, Oh, I remember exactly because I replayed this clip for every coworker possible. Um, it's the in the greatest city in the world, in the greatest city in the world. That's like the part that they got me on, and um, what I what happened also with that was CBS this morning, like the week leading up to the ceremony, does like a spotlight preview on each person, pretty much. And they were doing the tease for the ceremony. And that was the clip that they used for the tease. So it's like 2 a.m. when I get home. Catching up on CBS this morning and Good Morning America and all of that stuff. It's like 2 a.m. and there's my big ass face on my television. I'm just like, oh, well, you spoiled that for me. So I know at least I'm on it once. And that was like really the only time you could really see me during that ceremony. And I was just like, I recorded it because I don't know if the clip was on YouTube yet, but I was able to find the YouTube clip afterwards so I could show that around to everybody. And, um, yeah, I was just like, there's me. And, of course, like, I posted all about this when it happened. And then, like, all these people out of the woodwork. When I was actually working the night that the Kennedy Center Honors were airing, so I was, like, on my way home, and then I get, like, five text messages. They're like, I just saw you on the television. I'm like, yeah, I told you that this was going to happen. And um, so, yeah, so that's pretty much my Hamilton story when it comes to Kennedy Center honors. Um, I didn't, I mean, I, of course, saw the people on stage, and Anthony Ramos and uh, Jasmine Cephas-Jones were seated behind me. Um 
but I didn't run into any of them because the Hamilton crew were sitting downstairs because most of them went up to perform pretty much during their segment. It was a brand new thing where they were like now trying to like include a piece of work, not just an individual now because they did Sesame Street this year. And we're still waiting on what this year's is going to be because they delayed the ceremony. But usually this time of year, we've found out by now. So I don't know when they're going to announce it, but I'm very excited. But I'm also intrigued as to what the criteria for this like new thing that they're doing where it's like a body of work winning. I don't really love it. I, I just think there's just so many great people that we need to honor before we can start just giving it to like a musical and a t- television series. Both very deserving, because yes, they are culturally significant and fit the criteria of what the Kennedy Center honors are, but I don't know, It's but you kind of have to think back, it's like, so, like, we're just not going to acknowledge, like, a chorus line or um, any of the, like, definitive musicals of the 60s and 50s, like, Hamilton is the first piece of musical theater that like qualifies for this I mean it's definitely the most of the modern era but I don't know it's like what are we going to do next year Uh, Saturday Night Live or are we going to do the Muppets I don't know or like is a film series going to be next like the Star Wars franchise or God forbid it's the Marvel Cinematic Universe I don't know. It's it's a weird... It's one that I get where they're coming from with the thing, but I don't know. This has turned into a Kennedy Center Honors podcast, so I haven't even gotten into the awards yet. Um, so, long story short, quotation marks, um, is... I have a very weird relation with Hamilton, I guess, is where I'm coming at. Oh, I was talking about Christopher Jackson and how his performance is kind of underrated. Or, I mean, he got a Tony nomination for it, but he, he's kind of the one of the Tony nominees who doesn't get talked about enough, and I think he did a great job. Um, the entire ensemble's fantastic. I mean, what's new? Um, I think, as I mentioned kind of at the beginning... The technical aspects that are, like, captured with this filming of, like, the turntable and the lighting design was really well done. Sometimes that stuff gets lost in translation when you're not an actual movie and you're just a film piece of theater and it's designed for the theater, not for the camera. But I think they did a great job getting the essence of the show. But... You know, there's nothing like seeing it live. That's always the thing with theater. And that's everybody's whole thing about how, why, like, recording theater is not the top priority. It's about the live experience. But the real reality is not everybody can get to New York. Not everybody can afford everything that goes into going to Broadway including the transportation fees, the hotel fees, and the fees of just the ticket alone. Um, Especially for a show like Hamilton, you pretty much 
it's going to be like a thousand dollars by the time you add everything up. Um, I'm getting playback failure on something. What the hell? Um, sorry, I'm. I got disinterested in drunk history, and I'm just kind of watching it on mute just to get through it and just, I don't know, I got bored by it. I don't know why it keeps getting nominated for Emmys, but there is a Hamilton episode that's coming up. I don't remember which season it is. Um, the whole thing about recording theater is it, it's not the same, and I would never advocate, oh, don't go to the theater, see the movie version, my whole thing is I'm very appreciative of the filmed shows because if it's something I'm not particularly so interested in, um, it's, it's still it's, it's an easy introduction to a piece of theater that will inspire you to go see the next production of it because um, Company is a great example. Um, I mean... That's not, I mean, it's a little bit different. The PBS recording of the 2011 concert of company um, that was done at Lincoln Center, I fell in love with company through that production. And I was like, I submitted it to be done at our local theater, and it got approved, and I was so excited about it, and I was able to finally see the show done live. And... I'm trying to think of another great example of this. Of oh, I'm trying to think of all the great PBS productions. I mean, Cats is that way. I mean, that that's the whole the whole thing. Cats, whether you love it or you hate it, is the reason why a lot of people of my age group, because the VHS came out right when we were kids, is the reason why we got into theater. Uh, the Disney Renaissance helped a lot as well because we lived in that time period as well. Um, and I don't know. It's just one of those things where um, a lot of, like, the people of the 80s generation, like, 80s childhood generations always go to the Into the Woods, Bernie at Peters recording. And, I mean, it's just... My whole thing is, like, who, what do you have to lose by recording these productions... Um, other than maybe a few ticket sales, but when it's something like Hamilton, where not everybody can afford the ticket, it's so sold out, I mean, and it's just going to, my, the whole argument of you're going to lose ticket sales by filming a show is a fair concern, but in the long run, like, whenever I watch one of these things and I fall in love with it, I'm like, oh, I want to go see that now. It's not a thing of, oh, I finally got to see it, and that's that. Um, I don't know. And it also, my number one thing about it, too, is it gets rid of the need that people feel the need to bootleg and then feel the need to um, defend the bootleg culture of, oh, no, we're actually the saints of Broadway because... We're giving other people all around the world who can't make it to New York the chance to see a show and fall in love with it. And my thing is, it's still illegal. It's distracting to not only the cast, 
um, but also to the audience when you're filming a show, and it's very noticeable. Um, it's also, I don't know, it's also one of those things where um, the, it's, it, the actors are not pre- prepared to be giving a performance that's going to live on forever. It's one thing when it's this, where they are prepared for it and know that this is going to be their performance. And not saying that the actor should always be on their A-game for this very reason. They should because, you know, they are supposed to be giving the same performance every night because it's a different audience every night. But if you've ever done theater, things happen. Sometimes you're not on your A-game because you had a bad day or, you know, something happened to your voice. But, I don't know, the whole bootleg conversation is such a sticky one that I don't want to get into because the people who are so vocal on both sides sometimes get to the point where it's like, are you even listening to yourself at this rate? It's like, who are you helping in this situation? Um, My whole thing is, and I kind of mentioned this on the last episode, talking about this and SpongeBob is, I don't know why the unions are such, like, pulling teeth when it comes to filming these shows about the... I understand everybody should get paid for what they're worth, but it drags down the beauty of what can come out of getting these captured in a very beautiful way. I know it's so much money to do, and a thing like Hamilton was something that was very expensive, but they could do it because they had so much money. And I just wish we could have a PBS great performance for every show because a limited runs, especially because it's like, you're a limited run. You're going to close anyway. You know, you're going to close. I mean, the only thing you have to lose is making money off of a limited run, which most of them don't make money anyways, because it's a limited run. And you're only really doing it so an actor can get some clout and notoriety in the theater and maybe a Tony Award. That's really what those limited runs are for. Because this is getting to a whole other subject about limited run shows. Don't get me started about that because my whole thing with these limited run shows is if they're a popular play, rather than waiting like two more years to revive the same show... Why not get the people who want to do the show over, like, all the thousands of people who want to do the show, and the reason why we get a revival of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf every other year at this rate, um, or the one that Tom Hiddleston did um, that was just on Broadway, like, four years before, and they were just talking about bringing the present laughter London production over here, even though we literally just had present laughter in 2017, um, it's just, why have a limited run when all these pe- actors want to play these roles, and if you're making money, keep going? It's so aggravating. <laughs> Long story. Let's go back to Hamilton and get off my soapbox about all kinds of other things. Um, so, the World's Review, of course, everybody loves it. Um, there has been a lot of uh, re-evaluation uh, of the show in the I mean, the show ran 
majority of its run has been in the Trump era. Obviously, we all know the whole Mike Pence of it all. Um, but the show was written in the Obama era, where there was a lot of hope for the country, and we were really proud of our country, uh, but many people, especially in the recent events that have come to light, uh, not come to light, but just have kind of amplified, there has been a lot of discussion about how the show, even five years later, has not aged as well as we think it has with what we're talking about in this social climate. I'm not the person to explain that. Uh, look it up. I don't necessarily agree with all of the um, detractions. I do think there is a sense of Hamilton fatigue that gets into the culture when anything blows up, especially like during Oscar season when everybody is raving about a movie in September and then by the time we get to January or February, it's think piece after think piece after think piece about how, oh, no, this actually sucks. Or literally a month after the Oscars, is like, why did we just do that? Um, Hamilton had a little bit of that, like, when it was on Broadway, when it was kind of really oversaturating the theatrical news. But it was more of the insiders, like the news reporters, than actual culture was getting sick of it. Um, but, you know, it brings up the discussion of George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, Thomas Jefferson were all slave owners, and they make no... I mean, they do make mention of slaves in the show, but it's nothing like... Like, they're not characters in the show. And it's also the notion of... You have all these diff different, diverse people playing, like, these roles that were old white men and not mentioning, like, that they were slave owners. Read up on it. I'm not going to summarize all of the, those think pieces. Um, but other than that, I think it got genu genuinely great reviews from people who have not seen it and people who have seen it and talking about the actual filming and capture of it and how these performances have held up. Um, maybe not so much some of the themes of the show. I don't know. Um, so let me speed round this to get this to at least less than 90 minutes. Um, Liza Award I'm giving to Renee Lee Goldsberry um, with a special shout-out to Jonathan Groff. Uh, Renee's, I mean, and my razzle-dazzle award goes to Satisfied because even though You'll Be Back and the Skylar Sisters are kind of my favorite to listen to. Satisfied as a production of it all. It's not like a big dance production number. It's the way it's staged, the way the lighting works, the way, and then for the film purposes, the way it's filmed, I think, is just extraordinary. And this, the reason why I keep going back over and over again to watch that clip. Just Renee's performance is so great, so close up. Um, I should mention, Renee Lee Goldsberry was my runner-up for Best Supporting Actress last year for her performance in Waves. Um, I think she was also really great in her kind of big first post-Hamilton project, which was the TV movie for HBO, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks with Oprah. She played the titular Henrietta Lacks, and I thought she was going to get an Emmy nomination for it off of like the big Hamilton love, but... That movie kind of underperformed overall. 
Um, the other thing she kind of did right after was Altered Carbon, which I watched specifically for her. And the show is very, I don't know, the second season just aired this year, and I've already forgotten it. Anthony Mackie was doing that variety actors on actor series, and I'm like, what in the hell did Anthony Mackie do on TV this year that he's doing this interview? And then they brought up the title card, and it said, um, <laughs> Altered Carbon. I'm like, that came out this year, and I totally forgot that that happened. Um, I, I think she was only, Renee was only on it maybe one episode this season as, like, a flashback, too. So I've really given up on that show because she was really the only reason why I watched it in the first place. Um, but she's been kind of doing bits. She's a very big staple on CBS dramas because she's had guest roles on The Good Wife, The Good Fight, Evil, I think maybe some of those other kind of lawyer shows that I don't watch. Um, but she's like the queen of the CBS guest star role. Um, but she's just incredible. I hope that her performance in Waves, which got really under uh, talked about because that movie was one of those ones that it's very weird in terms of category placements for those actors because it's a movie where it's pretty much split half and half in terms of who that movie is about. The first half is about Kelvin Harrison Jr. He's kind of the lead of the first half of the movie. And then it's just totally gone for the second half. And then the second half goes to his sister in the movie, Taylor Russell, who is in the first act, but not as heavily featured as in the second act. And she got pretty much the the share of supporting actress notices for that movie when really she should have been in the lead category because they pretty much share the threshold of leading that movie. But I think they were both put in supporting because Calvin Harrison Jr. also had Loose last year, which was pushed in lead because he was the lead of that. And I don't remember where they ended up putting him for waves, but that kind of knocked out both Sterling K. Brown and Renee Scalsbury. Renee Lee Scalsbury wasn't really talked about at all, but she should have. That is like a great, that would have been a great spirit nomination at the very least. But the issue was Taylor Russell was the one who was getting all the supporting actors' love for that movie. And she really should have been in the lead category, in my opinion. So Renee could have been picked up. This is all that goes through my mind. But in conclusion, cast Renee Lee Goldsberry in more movies. She should EGOT win an Oscar. She should win an Emmy for this performance because uh, Hamilton kind of came right when the Emmy, the daytime Emmys implemented that talk show performance award that's now debunked um, for four years. We had a good run, um, but they never <laughs> performed on a morning talk show in that time frame, so they did not win that category. So the only person from this cast who is like close to an EGOT is Lin-Manuel Miranda because he's only an O away from EGOT because he won Emmy Awards for writing Tony Award songs, or he won for that. And then Leslie Odom Jr. could do that this year because he is nominated for Central Park in voiceover, but I don't think he's going to win. Um, but we'll get into the awards of this particular project in just a bit. 
about what could happen next year at the Emmy Awards, but let me just sing the praises of Renee Lee Skullsbury a little bit more. She's amazing. She's an icon. She's a legend. And she is the moment. Now, come on now. And, uh, yeah. Uh, they announced that Disney Plus, with the success of Hamilton, is going to invest in movie musicals, it looks like, because they announced they're going to do a Once on the Silent movie for Disney Plus. And when they announced the revival of Once on the Silent, I really was hoping that Renee Lee Goldsberry could at least be either um, uh, T-Moon's mother or Zuli or, um, I don't know. Because she, she played T-Moon in, like, a production at some point, not on Broadway. Um, and um, when I first, like, fell in love with Renee Elise Goldsberry, I had no idea that the woman is in her mid-40s. She's, like, now, like, pushing 50, which is just, like, I mean, look, we don't talk about women's appearances, but I have to just say, look at Renee Elise Goldsberry and... Uh, Tell me with a straight face that that woman is about to turn 50, and I would laugh at you, because, I mean, she looks like she is in her late 20s, and I remember tweeting something about, oh, I would love to see Renee at least Goldsberry play T-Moon, and she liked the tweet, but did not correct me when uh, I had no idea that the woman was, you know, 20 years too late for that role um, in current day. Um, so I would love to see her in that, um, but, you know, she should be in all kinds of things. Cast her Natalie Skullsbury. She's my Liza Award winner, with a special notice to Jonathan Groff's spit. Um, and then the Pierce Brosnan Award goes to... I, I'm not going to say, like, Leslie Odom Jr. or Lin-Manuel Miranda, because for this specific recording... Sure, they were the weaker links for me, but they're not bad at all. Um, the Pierce Brosnan Award goes to uh, probably Disney Plus for being the ones who acquired this and not, like, you know, a streaming service that could, you know, properly play on my television without having to buy a Roku or Fire Stick or whatever the fuck those things are called. So I'm giving the Pierce Brosnan Award to Bob Iger. I'm just kidding. Um, I don't know. There's really no Pierce Brosnan Award here. Um, and then the, I, I said what the uh, Razzle Dazzle Award is. It's satisfied. Though, I have to give that an asterisk as well. Oh, I never realized, or I never clarified why I called this movie Musical Memories bonus episode 30 with an asterisk. Uh, the reason why is because I never released episode 29, bonus episode 29, because it was on Mary Poppins Returns, and that was right when my computer was truly crapping out on me. Like, I could not get through, like, two minutes of recording a podcast without it uh, restarting. So, there is a lost episode of Mary Poppins Returns somewhere. Uh, I would have to go back and listen to it and see where I left off on the discussion and re-record it, um, and then maybe I'll release it. I don't know. I have to go through my external hard drives to even see if anything of it saved. Um, but the asterisk for this performance is uh, there was a viral clip that went around the weekend that this premiered that um, savvy should-be script supervisors checked out on. For some reason, 
because the the movie magic here is that this is actually uh, three different performances all edited together. Um, for some reason, there is a flower on the like the like front of like where her chest is. Renee Lise Goldsberry. There's like a flower some nights on that, and then some shots it's not there. And what I have to understand is this was like a week before she left the show. Or I don't know if she left with like the original crew. I think she stayed for a little bit longer. But you know, you know, the week before the original cast truly was going to like dismantle. How on earth are we still doing a costume like piece change like this far into the run? And I don't know, it's when you know that it's coming, it's very distracting. It's one of those things where when you find out like something that goes wrong in a movie, like a continuity error, and you know about it, you can never watch that movie again without noticing it. It's like whenever I watch La La Land, when I first notice there's a scene where it's an overhead shot of like Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone walking on the back lot, they are truly not moving their lips at all or even like remotely looking like they're trying to talk but there's a voiceover of them talking and it's just like it's so it always bothers me every time I see it because it's just like it's one of those nitpicky things where I'm like I can see that <laughs> and it's like it, it's just it's uh, it's an error and I I did script supervising in college so I've been very equipped to noticing stuff like this but uh, it always drives me nuts now because I've done editing when I watch a movie or TV show and they've chosen a shot where um, it's really just, it's, it's a scene where, or it's a shot where the actor talking is saying a different line than what they're saying at that moment. So their jaw is not, like you can tell in their jaw they are not saying the words that you're hearing. It was just really for what the other actor in the scene who's looking at that person is reacting, is why they went with that shot. I, they told us when we got into film school that you are going to ruin watching movies from being a film major. Movies will be ruined for you forever. And they were correct. Because these nitpicks that happened, I always drives me nuts. And it could be like just... Uh, a bracelet like being on an arm at one point and then and another scene not I mean there was that whole thing with Game of Thrones the final season where just water bottles and coffee cups were found on set I mean that kind of stuff doesn't like as usually I don't notice that stuff it's it's just the like the blatant like when did you take something off at this time and nobody corrected you? I get it as a script supervisor that so much is going on at one moment that you're responsible of doing and you can't really catch a breath to notice anything different. But it's just... <laughs> and, of course, the th thing about movie magic as well is somebody could be filming a shot from one scene on a Monday... And then they go back to that same scene on two weeks from then to do something else, like, in that scene. So it's just, it's up to, 
the script supervisor to A, remember, go back at the footage to make sure it all looks the same. Because we had to do that with one of my short films in college where um, there was newspaper all over the floor of like this alleyway and the sun was coming up so we had to do one shot like the following day. But of course we couldn't leave all that stuff there because it's a shared back lot. So I had to take a picture and remember where every single piece of newspaper was and uh, what's like what ads were on what side of the floor. It's it's a it's a difficult thing. I mean, and um, you know, I said because I had to double up because we lost a couple people from the class um, who failed for the next class. Do not double up being a script supervisor and the production designer, though it is a it is a it, it sounds like it's a good combo because you have to remember where all the different set pieces go. So it is a very like a collaborative like two positions. But trying to focus on writing down all the script supervisor information that you have to do plus having to get up and change something it, it got way too hard. And also because they were filming or they were setting up a scene on the other back lot, so when we moved over there, we would be ready to go. But as the production designer, I was not over there to uh, tell people where all the set pieces needed to go. And then when I got over there, it all looked different from when we rehearsed it the night before. And it was just one of those things where I was like, oh, like, I was like, I was like short-circuiting because that's how I am in my perfectionist ways. And I was just like, and then of course the teacher was like, just chill, like just go with the flow. I'm like, he just had to calm me down. There's also a whole miscommunication about, because I was told that I was in charge of these lantern type things and the different like color pattern that we were doing. And then when I get there, they're yelling at me that no, it's a lighting person's job. And I'm like, then why did you put that on my list of responsibilities of finding it was a whole thing. I, we're on a, like almost to the 90-minute mark. I'm not going to keep going. <laughs> Anyways, the flower. I don't know why nobody caught that, um, but it bothers me every time I rewatch it now. But it's still the best staged for the camera and the lighting design and how they use the t- turntable and the music, of course, and, like, Renee's performance of it is just gorgeous. <laughs> Let me move on. Um, if I could change one thing, uh, I don't know. If I could change one thing, it was, as much as I love the accessibility of watching this over and over again at any time of the day, whenever I want to, I really was looking forward to seeing this on the big screen in a movie theater, sharing the communal feeling as best as you could of seeing it live. Um, But then again, I probably saved myself from the super fans who probably would have turned it into a sing-along. And so I'm kind of okay with this kind of secluded viewing of it. I don't know. You get my drift. It wasn't a sing-along at my house because I didn't really know all the words. Um, But I would really hope when movie theaters can reopen and if we are low on content that um, 
companies like Disney um, are struggling to put things into theaters that will get people back in. I mean, of course, it's hard to say that, but, I mean, we've proven this over and over again with my movie theater playing Netflix movies in our theater. If the movie has enough buzz, people will come to the theater to see it. Now, the only difference I have to say is sometimes with those Netflix Oscar-y movies, we get it three weeks before it comes onto Netflix. So that's kind of the big selling point of seeing it in the theater the opening weekend because you get first dibs of seeing it before the world does. Um, because, you know, for the first few years of Netflix doing that, people didn't go out on the day and date because they knew it was on Netflix. But things like Roma, The Irishman, still did well once they got onto Netflix. It wasn't as... I mean, Roma was still selling out because that we have this niche DC crowd that will come out in support of foreign film, which is awesome. Um, but something like The Irishman, I think that was more the runtime was the big deal with that. That kind of da- died down on that. But like things like Marriage Story, we kind of got rid of, I think, prematurely because that was still doing very well, even though it was on Netflix um, at the time. But yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it, it depends on the project and it depends on the awards uh, conversation it's having. Something like Hamilton, I think if they brought it into theaters, people will still come. I don't think it'll be sold out houses like they were intending this to be. But I would love to see it on the big screen. And um, yeah, and I think they should invest in bringing it to what they were originally going to do, which was play it like October, like on a Friday, like a real movie, and um, get a lot of buttons even if they have to do it as a fathom event, I would be totally down with doing that. Um, anything else about if I could change anything? Really, nothing I would change. <laughs> nothing I would change about it. Give Jonathan Groff a few more scenes. <laughs> I mean, I know King George wasn't really big into the, 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 the post-Revolutionary War story, but it would have been nice if Jonathan Groff had a few more numbers. Um... And what else? Um, oh, the awards. Um, so, of course, this hasn't been up for any awards yet because it just came out um, and it missed the Emmy eligible, eligibility window for this year. Now, the question is, the Academy has already clarified that this will not qualify for the Oscars, which I thought was insane for anybody to think otherwise. Um Everybody likes to say, like, to name drop this movie from 1975 called Give Him Hell, Harry. And it was this musical, or it was a one-man play that was filmed that got nominated for Best Actor for James Whitmore. And um, it's just kind of one of those, like, anomalies that has never happened again because people failed to do the follow-up research finding out that a few years after that nomination happened, the Academy changed their rules to make things like that ineligible for the Oscars, like recorded performance, or recorded like theater performances like Hamilton. But everybody chose to not do that follow-up research and be like, see, Hamilton's going to get Oscar nominations because this movie from 1975 that four people in the world have ever seen, I haven't even seen it because... I've been very confused by Amazon 
who claim that they have this movie, but it's labeled as a 2012 movie, and it has a picture of the real Harry Truman as the cover, so it looks like it's a documentary. But then when I was scrolling into the like cast info and like the trivia, it says it is James Whitmore, and it's like the only movie to get a nomination for a one-man show. And so I'm like, oh, so... Anyways, this is a movie I haven't even seen, and I'm like a big Oscar completist, and I'm almost done, but I've not been able to find this movie because I was so confused by the way Amazon packages it, pun intended. Um, but yeah, it, it was always a crazy thing to think. Like, because even if it was going to get that theatrical run that it was initially going to have, it was still not going to qualify for Oscars. And people were like, is it going to get into the best documentary category? It's like, it's not a documentary. And then I see people on the Letterbox Facebook forum group saying, what's the best concert film? And they include this with things like Stop Making Sense and This Is It and, like, the Pink Floyd documentary. I'm like, this is not a concert film. Why are you film snobs so snobby that you can't admit that this is a recording of a Broadway musical and not a, a concert film, documentary, or movie? It is not any of those three. Um, but for the purposes of uh, the Emmy Awards, where they do qualify these recorded productions, for the performance categories, for the limited series or TV category, but the actual program itself is in the variety pre-recorded category or something like that. Well, this will be a little bit different because they usually do the live musicals. Like, that. those usually go up against, like, the Tony Awards and the Emmy Award or the Oscars, like, the live telecast because there's, like, a live and a pre-recorded variety special. So this will probably be in the pre-recorded, of course. Um... So this is the whole thing about the Emmys next year. because uh, And the thing is, Disney Plus has pretty much cemented itself as being a TV channel when Netflix and Amazon kind of get into those muddy waters of being both. Um, because more so Amazon usually gives all of their movies a traditional theatrical run, and then they come to Amazon maybe a few months later. Netflix has always treaded the water of they give some of their movies a theatrical run just to qualify for awards. This year they've changed the rules just because of the pandemic that that is not required. Um, but my whole thing with Netflix for the longest time is some of these movies that kind of been big fan favorites that I don't even think got a theatrical run. If they did, it was one theater in New York and L.A. that wasn't even that big publicized in terms of playing in a theater for a theatrical run. Um, if they didn't, I'm just like, why don't you submit it for the Emmys as a TV thing? Because you have all of these TV shows. Why don't you like commit to some of your original movies that you don't give a theatrical release to as a TV movie? No, they want to be like, oh, we're making films. We're trying to disrupt the narrative or disrupt the streaming or the narratives or whatever. And it's just like, no, you either, you're either a movie or you're a TV, like, choose one and play by whichever's rules. But my thing is, I mean, 
Netflix has cheated their way into the TV movie category with all these Black Mirror TV episodes winning the last few years, but it's like, you could have won for a couple of other different things that were not given a big theatrical push, but were critically acclaimed. I'm blanking on anything that's coming to my mind right now, but they always have all this stuff that they acquire from, like, Sundance that just kind of gets buried on here. Long story short, Disney Plus... When they launched launched a couple different movies, The Lady on the Tramp, quote-unquote live-action movie, Noelle or whatever, didn't give them theatrical releases. I don't think they've given any of their original movies a theatrical release. So my whole thing is they're a TV channel. Just all their movies that they premiere on their site are TV. That's, I mean, look, I know the people who are like, a movie's a movie, and they qualify HBO movies into their end-of-the-year movie list. And I'm just, for the awards purposes of what qualifies at which awards ceremony, I always go by what the Oscars and what the Emmys choose to qualify something as one or the other. Now, when it gets to documentaries, that's when it drives me nuts. And I think the Emmys are finally doing something about it where you can only qualify for one or the other. I'm so tired of a movie that premiered on A&E, like for TV, or one of the CNN films that was produced by CNN but given a theatrical release and then five months later premiered on CNN. It somehow is qualified for both Emmys and Oscars. No, 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 you don't get to double dip like that. You either qualify for Oscars or Emmys. Like, what are we doing here? Um, that is why... I like all the HBO documentaries that just kind of do the HBO route and go for Emmys and don't kind of clutter the Oscar field with double dippers. And it just it gets to the point where, like, you have the same movies that got Oscar nominations in the Emmy category. It's like, it's like deja vu. Like, what are we doing here? Anyways, what I'm trying to say is Hamilton will likely qualify for the Emmys in the performance categories, like a lot of these variety kind of pre-recorded, like the performances that I can say are examples of this over the past few years when they kind of opened this up. The first performance I can say kind of that opened this up was um, Emma Thompson for the, um, the Lincoln Center kind of special performance of Sweeney Todd. She got a Best Actress in a movie miniseries or TV movie nomination. And then over the last few years with the live musicals, all of these people have qualified, but they've just never been that good enough to really get in here. But the people that did were the Jesus Christ Superstar, three leads, John Legend, Brandon Victor Dixon, and Sarah Bareilles got nominated for those. So I'm thinking, especially if production on TV movies and limited series are much lesser than what we got this year. There are a couple that have been pushed from this past Emmy season to next Emmy season because the networks realize we don't have anything on the can, but we can just push this over. It will free up kind of the competition a little bit of like internal things. So like HBO has like the undoing that's going to come out in the fall. Um, they still got, have to finish Genius Aretha with Cynthia Revo. Uh, they still have like one more episode of the new season of Fargo to do. 
So there is stuff in the horizon in terms of miniseries and movies, but I think if you see a lot of slots open next year, we can see a repeat of the Tony Awards of all the same people getting uh, Emmy nominations. I don't know if people like Jonathan Groff or Christopher Jackson or both Lin-Manuel Miranda and Leslie Odom Jr. could get in to the uh, Emmy race, depending on how many different performances are available. But we could very much see a repeat of what happened to the Tonys in the specific way of Leslie Odom Jr., David Diggs, Renee Elise Goldsberry winning for Hamilton, and Cynthia Revo winning <laughs> over Philippa Sue for a different project, this time being the Aretha Franklin miniseries that's also per- now premiering at the same time as the movie version that's coming out. So it would be hilarious if that happened all over again. Um, but this is a big if in terms of how they're going to campaign it and how many other projects are going to come out and if they're even going to do the work to, like, remind people that they are eligible for these awards. Because, like, Jesus Christ Superstar kind of blew up in a bigger way than I thought it would in terms of Emmy nominations, but it still didn't win any of those awards because, you know, it's not... In my eyes, for the awards purposes and giving the performers the credit that's due... I will count it as a TV movie in that way, but I don't know. We haven't seen precedent for these performances winning these categories. So, but Hamilton has broken a lot of precedents. So, I'm just going to say so over and over again until this hits two hours. Um, Let me wrap this up by saying uh, the awards that it should get nominated, I do think that David, Jonathan Groff, Christopher Jackson, Renee Elise Goldsberry, and Philippa Sue especially should show up at the Emmy nominations next year. Um, Leslie and Lynn, I wouldn't be mad if they got in, but I just don't think that this was their best night that they were performing. I can't really compare it. But from other clips I've seen and stuff, I'm like, I just feel like they've been better recorded elsewhere than this specific uh, couple different nights stitched together. And maybe it is an editing thing as well. Who knows? Um, but I think it will do well at the Emmy Awards if it like breaks big there. Um, it's just a big if. Um, it's definitely the TV movie front runner in my mind, even though it doesn't qualify for that at the Emmy Awards. It's for the variety pre-recorded thing or whatever. Anyways, I think that's all I have to say about Hamilton. I probably did not dig into it as much as I needed to, but um, breaking it down song by song and really evaluating it, um, I would have loved to have somebody who is a Hamilton mega fan on here, like at Sassmaster Maria, but I just wanted to get this out of the way and record it, and, you know, I haven't really... (laughs) We haven't really talked since last year's theater camp, and... We didn't do theater camp this year, so I don't know. And I'm still trying to work this whole doing this these podcasts over Skype or whatever. And I don't know. We did the Golden Globe one, and there were a couple errors. And I'm just like, this is the reason why I much prefer doing something like this in person. But of course, we can't do that right now. Um, to wrap it up, Hamilton. 
Very good. Um, I will also say, though the choreography is really well done, and it's very creative, very Bob Fosse-esque Pippin era of Fosse kind of choreography, from the Tony performance and the clips I've seen of Shuffle Along, I still stand by that uh, one of the Tony Awards that Hamilton ended up winning that it didn't need was choreography. I would have given that to Shuffle Along. I don't think that would have done anything to keep the show running because we all know that was a little bit of uh, sexism that came to play in terms of why that show shut down due to the producer blaming Audrey McDonald's pregnancy on the reason why that show wasn't selling more tickets after she was leaving, pretty much the way he worded that press release. Um, I do agree with She Loves Me sets winning over the Hamilton sets, even though I think it's ridiculous that David Corns is still Tony-less for his set design. Uh, I have not seen Hades Down, but from the still images I have seen of Hades Town set, I have no idea how you give, uh, you do not give a Tony Award to the set design of Beetlejuice, no matter your feeling of the show. That set is just one of the most creative, incredibly designed sets I have seen on a Broadway stage ever. And the fact that that did not win was ridiculous. David Corns, you have a Tony in my heart. Um, and then Philip Basu was the other nominee who did not, I mean, the only other nominee who wasn't, who didn't lose to another Hamilton person to not win, um, Cynthia Riva won for The Color Purple. If you watch any clip from The Color Purple, uh, yes, Philip Basu is heartbreaking and everything, but if you, if you seriously watch a clip of Cynthia Revo of The Color Purple and don't think that is one of the great vocal, all-around, full-package performances of emotion, incredible vocals, power, and just so much, like, internal, like, uh, it's just a master class, and I'm s I still kick myself that I didn't go see that when she was in it. Because I saw the tour, and I was like, this just needs Cynthia Revo. And, uh, yeah. Um, in terms of the other Tony's awards it won, I very much well can see why they all won. I still would have loved for Michael Arden to win something for Spring Awakening for directing that, because I thought he reinvented that show in such a beautiful way. But who can, who really can argue about Tommy Kell's direction of Hamilton? It's so inventive and well-staged. Um, I will say, other choreography note, I'm still not over Spring Awakening not getting a choreography nomination the way Spencer Lift incorporated sign language into choreography. Still blows my mind how beautiful that was. It's so annoying that he did not get nominated for that. Um, the lighting design of Spring Awakening did get nominated, but like the lighting design for Hamilton was just really well done, so I can't begrudge that win. And... Um, that's pretty much it. It deserved all the other awards that it won from the different things that I saw that season, which was just Spring Awakening and then clips of the color purple. Okay, so we're almost at two hours, so I'm going to really wrap this up now. 
who who would have thought that I would talk about Hamilton for two hours? Nobody in America. Um, anyways, um, so next week I will be talking about the SpongeBob Nickelodeon movie or whatever you want to call it. The recording. Um, it is available on demand if you have Nickelodeon. Um, I don't know how often they actually replay it on Nickelodeon. Um, Tina Landau, the director, has said on Twitter that um, when the sing-along happened, that was kind of the debut of the two-hour version. So when they did this recording, and because I, you know, I saw SpongeBob in December of 2017, uh, I can't... Re- and the... Cast recording is pretty much the Chicago cast and before they made all the changes for the Broadway production. So I have all of the lyrics from the Chicago run, like, memorized. So whenever I rewatch, like, the recording, I get so pissed off that I'm like, that's not the lines that were recorded in the cast album for posterity's sake. Like, why did you release the cast recording before you got to Broadway when you made all these changes. That's why we always wait to make the recording like three months after the show started so you finalize all the music. Plus, the big issue that they have had, and some of the cast members, I'm not going to say Wesley Taylor, um, have been very vocal on Twitter about how the people want the recording of the original Broadway cast because there were some significant changes with the cast um, for better, I should say, comparative to what's on the cast recording, especially from Mr. Krabs, Plankton, and especially, no shade to the recorded Pearl, who actually is an ensemble member in Hamilton, apparently. Um, I don't know if she was in this recording, though. She might have been one of the ones who was gone by the time this got recorded. Um, The girl who plays, I will talk about it all in the next episode, but the girl who plays Pearl in the original Broadway cast, literally, the Palace Theater is a humongous theater with a large kind of roof, like roof-to-floor space. She blew that roof right off the Palace Theater. That is why they're renovating it now, because they had to fix the roof from the notes she was hitting in that show and blowing us all away. Um, But... I'm so mad that they did not record this with the original Broadway cast. No shade to... Shade to the guy who plays Mr. Krabs, because he's not even trying. I don't even know that actor. But I have met the actor who played Plankton on the original cast recording. He's a very nice man. Very good performer. I saw him in Falsettos on tour. Um, I didn't realize it was him until I was reading the playbill. Um, And then the other actress... She sounds good on the recording as um, Pearl, but... I'm telling you, does not compare to what that actress who I... It's Jaylin Josie, I think is her name. Um, I can't remember. She's got, like, four, like, credited pieces of her name that I can't remember all off the top of my head. And I'm not going to spend more time looking it up. I'll wait till next week to gush about her. But I just... Um, what I'm trying to say is... I don't remember the full, I don't have the whole show memorized in the sense of what she Tina Landau cut for the Nickelodeon recording for the two and a half hour run with commercials I should mention, but she had to cut it down to two hours for repeat purposes 
and for the sing-along version that they premiered a few months after the regular version that they initially premiered. And so I don't, I haven't checked on demand to see if it is the uh, much scaled down version or if it's the initial December production that they released. But regardless, watch it. It's a f- wonderful show. I, I, I'm going to say it right now. I love it more than Hamilton. Um, it's also much better than The Band's Visit. And The Band's Visit is a nice show, but overrated and won way too many Tony Awards over SpongeBob, specifically. Um, but we'll get all into that next week. Um, but yes, watch it. It's also available, I think, on Amazon for like three bucks for a rental or whatever. And yeah. Um, what? How to end our time on the Hamilton podcast. Oh, there's only one thing to say. You'll be back. Time will tell. Um, I don't remember the next line, but I was going to say it. I will fight the fight and win the war for your love, for your praise. Until my dying day, when you're gone, I'll be mad. So don't throw this, don't throw away this thing we had. Because when push comes to shove, I will kill your friends and family to remind you of my love. Da 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 everybody and the bumper music is satisfied performed by Ruth Goldsberry and Manuel Miranda and for your praise and I'll love you till my dying days when you're gone I'll go mad so don't throw away this thing we heard cause when comes to shove I will kill your friends and family to remind you of my love da 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 da